All right, good to see everybody this evening. We're still studying angels, and uh, there's a lot more to talk about. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just hard to decide what to go with from week to week. There, there's so many interesting topics in this regard. I'm still in the mode of setting things up, though. I, I feel like it's such a broad subject that there's a lot of introductory stuff that has to be done. And so before we get into more specifics, what I want to do is go through the biblical terminology, starting the Old Testament and then going into the New Testament, looking at how angels are described. Last week we talked about their basic nature, and some of these terms will reflect on that, and some of them will add some new concepts. It's not just going to be a boring word study. We'll, we'll be looking at some interesting texts and how the terminology is used in these texts. Uh, but anyway, that, that's the plan. I doubt I can get through this whole list of terms in um, just one night. So we'll probably be carrying this on to next week. So we're starting, as I said, in the Old Testament, and I'm categorizing these a little bit as they help us understand the uh, nature and function of angels. So the first set of terms are going to be Old Testament terminology describing their nature. Okay, so this kind of ties into what we talked about last week. And let's start with this word, the word spirit. Uh, when we talked about the nature of angels, we said they were spiritual beings in essence. They have taken human form. We looked at some examples of that, obviously, but by nature, they are in essence spiritual beings. And uh, this word, this Hebrew word translated spirit, indicates that in some very interesting texts. Uh, one that you probably haven't studied in great detail is 1 Kings chapter 22, verses 19 through 23. And that's what I've got on the screen, at least the first part of that. Uh, but you probably will want to turn in your Bibles because it's impossible to get these entire texts on one screen. So let's look at this. This is where Micaiah confronts King Ahab. Uh, you know, Ahab had all of these prophets that he liked because they always said whatever he wanted them to say. They were his yes men. Uh, but Jehoshaphat, King of Judah, who was in a rare moment of coalition with the northern kingdom, uh, asked, is there not another prophet who will speak for the Lord? And Ahab said, there's Micaiah, but he's always on my case. I'm paraphrasing, but he didn't like Micaiah. Micaiah is a very interesting prophet. And uh, this is one of the few instances where we hear him speak. And as he speaks, he brings up the angels in terms of spirits. Listen to what he says. Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand, and on his left. Now, we'll talk about the phrase host of heaven in a moment, but that's a clear indication of the heavenly armies. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab? So the Lord is speaking to the host of heaven. Who will entice Ahab? That he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead. And one said one thing, and another said another. The angels are, are talking about it. Then a spirit came forward. And stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? 
And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Remember I said Ahab had his prophets that he liked and uh, Micaiah and Jehoshaphat were suspicious of them. And he said, you are to entice him, this is God speaking, and you shall succeed, go out and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these, your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. That's 1 Kings chapter 22, verses 19 through 23. Now the first thing people struggle with here is the Lord putting a lying spirit in the mouth of prophets. Uh, I hate to use the word to deceive, but that's usually what we connect, the purpose we connect to lying is. But really what he's doing is he's using this lying spirit to judge or to punish Ahab for his sin. And who are we to challenge God on how he judges and how he punishes evildoers like King Ahab? Uh, Ahab was going to believe these prophets. They were already false prophesying. And this angel, discussed in terms of a spirit, says, I'm going to put a lying spirit in, him, in the prophets. And uh, there are a lot of questions about this, but the only thing I'm really demonstrating, the reason I bring it up tonight, is to show you this terminology used with the angels as spirits. Now there's more. Here's a passage from 1 Samuel 16 that is probably more familiar to you. And a lot of people will go here to find the only case of demon possession in the Old Testament. Now, I don't believe it is a case of demon possession. And I've often just read this passage in terms of a psychological problem, an emotional problem, but perhaps it's something similar to what we read in 1 Kings 22. The Spirit of the Lord, now that's the Holy Spirit, capital S, departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Some translations say evil spirit, but the King James, for example, in using evil, was not using it in terms of a moral evil. That English word strictly means moral evil to us now, but there's no moral evil coming from heaven. And so harmful is a better translation. Harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now this isn't the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit has left him, you see? And Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. And we go on to read about how David is brought into the kingdom and he plays his lyre. And when he does, the harmful spirit leaves Saul for a temporary amount of time. But he struggles with this from time to time. So is this similar to 1 Kings 22? I can't say with certainty, but it's an interesting use of the term spirit that I've never heard explained in any better way than to say this is similar to what we read about in Micaiah. Okay, here's one other example from Isaiah. This is when Sennacherib of the Assyrians is attacking the city of Jerusalem, and Hezekiah prays to God for help. Isaiah comes to Hezekiah with this word from the Lord. This is Isaiah 37, 5 through 7. Behold, I will put a spirit in him. This is in Sennacherib, king of Assyria, so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. So again, you see this strange activity where these rulers seem to be receiving messages dispatched from heaven through a spirit. 
Could that spirit be angels? Well, another passage might be helpful here, and this is Psalm 104. We'll come to Psalm 104 several times. Uh, and you may want to turn over there because uh, the first few verses are, are helpful. Psalm 104, beginning in verse 1, really. This, this uh, slide has verses 3 and 4 on it. The Hebrew word for spirit can also mean wind or breath. And it's interesting, there's a parallel in Greek in the New Testament. The, the Greek word for spirit, pneuma, from which we get pneumatic or pneumonia, can mean spirit or wind or breath. So there's a difference in translation here. Just keep in mind, these words that I have in yellow on the screen are the same words translated spirit in the other texts. But I'm going to start reading with verse 1 of Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. Now, it could be spirit. Verse 4, he makes his messengers winds, plural. Messenger is a translation of the word for angel. And winds is in the plural here. He makes his angels winds. Could it be spirits, possibly? His ministers a flaming fire. Another thing that tells us that this is probably referring to angels as spirits is the book of Hebrews that quotes Psalm 104, verse 4, and in quoting it, it uses the word angel. Uh, Hebrews 1, 7, he makes his angels, and the, the ESV translates it winds there, but in context it's saying of the angels, he says this, and of Jesus, he says this. So this is applied to angels in uh, Psalm 104, and what makes more sense, to call them wind or to call them spirits? And, of course, we have Hebrews 1.14 that refers to them as ministering spirits. So that's the first term we're going to look at in the Old Testament. Some interesting texts there. A lot of question marks, I understand, but we're just taking it as, as it comes, one term after another in the context. Okay, let's go to this next one, heavenly ones. And I want to ask you to turn over to Psalm 89, verses 5 through 7. Very important passage we'll keep coming back to because there are many angelic terms in this. But the first one we're looking at is heavenly ones. And it's translated, as you see on the slide there, heavens. But that's why I used the yellow highlight, so that you could see that is really, in my opinion, should be translated heavenly ones. And you can see in context why. Let the heavens, or heavenly ones, praise your wonders, O Lord. Your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. I see in the parallelism there, heavens is parallel to holy ones. So let the heavenly ones praise your wonders, O Lord. Your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. Who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. So there you see heavenly ones, 
And this plural form of heavens is found over 400 times in the Old Testament. Most of the time it refers to heavens in terms of our atmosphere where the clouds are, or heaven above where God dwells. But in a few cases, in the plural, it's used of angels. And uh, there are other examples. I don't think I have any more slides on it. Yeah, I do. Job 15, 15. This is Eliphaz speaking. I'm always careful when I'm reading Job to see who's speaking. I give a lot more weight to Job and the Lord, of course, than to Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and Elihu. But uh, they speak, they were wise men, and they were speaking from what was common knowledge in those days. And so Eliphaz says, Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens, or heavenly ones, are not pure in his sight. Now, I know, I know that may cause you to scratch your head a little bit because you think of the angels as being pure. But we talked a little bit, and we'll talk more about how it's possible for angels to make bad choices and to sin. And so this could be a reference to that idea. We'll come back to that. Here's another term in the Old Testament, stars. This is the only case where I'm familiar with in the Old Testament where stars is used of angels. Um, but because of their, the, the language associating them with the heavens, stars is a natural metaphor for angels. So here's Job 38, verses 5 through 7. Who determined its measurements? Talking about the universe, creation, the cosmos. Surely you know. Remember, this is God speaking to Job out of the whirlwind. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? You have a little parallelism there. Sons of God connected to morning stars. We'll get to sons of God in a moment. But stars here seems to be a reference to angels. It's the only one in the Old Testament that I'm aware of. Um, it, it may be what James is talking about in James 1.17 when he calls God the father of lights. It could be the idea there of the metaphor of stars for angels. Here's holy ones. So back to Psalm 89. Look at it now in terms of the holy ones. We'll just read verse 5 since we've already read this whole thing. Let the heavens, remember that could be heavenly ones, praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. Holy means consecrated, separated, pure, without sin. And of course, only holy, consecrated, sanctified people can be in the presence of God, and the angels dwell in God's presence. So naturally, they would be called holy ones. I think I have some more examples of this. Here's Job 15, 15 again, where although they're holy, Eliphaz is saying God can't trust them. God puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. Here is Deuteronomy 33. This is Moses speaking in verses 2 and 3. The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones. So there's the first reference of it. I didn't highlight it, but ten thousands. You know, we 
We're talking about how many there were. And uh, Hebrews 12 says it's an innumerable host. So this is not a literal 10,000s. It's just, you know, in other words, innumerable uh, number of holy ones. With flaming fire at his right hand, yes, he loved his people. All his holy ones were in his hand. So they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you. Holy ones. Uh, and I think that's all. Here's, here's a new term. Now, we're going to take a little time on this one. This is a difficult one. Um, so last year, I did a cla class on names. And we spent a few weeks on names for God. And if you can think back to that, the first name for God that we talked about was the Hebrew word Elohim. Elohim is the plural form of the word for God. But in Genesis 1, for example, it's used with singular verbs, which is very interesting, right? Because it seems to indicate the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons in one divine essence. So it doesn't teach polytheism. Elohim is plural because of the three personalities in the one divine essence. So Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6 is true. There is one God. He is Elohim. Okay, that term is used with singular verbs when referring to God Almighty. But it's used in many other contexts to refer to others who are called Elohim. You know, God's is... When, when referring to um, false gods, gods with a lowercase g in the plural is probably a good translation. But when referring to other heavenly beings, it's not a great translation. Just keep in mind, Elohim in the Hebrew mind was much broader than just a reference to God. It's not the name for God. God's name in Hebrew is Yahweh. And it's indicated by all capital letters, L-O-R-D, in your translations. And many times, the Lord, L-O-R-D, Yahweh, is contrasted with false gods, lowercase g, plural, and sometimes with the other heavenly beings or the angels. But this term Elohim can refer to heavenly beings or spiritual beings in general that are higher than the human race. Okay, so this confusing passage makes a lot more sense when you think about that, Psalm 82. Uh, I put a reference to John 10 up there, and I don't think I'll turn over and read it, but this just tells you how tough this passage is. When the uh, Jews were giving Jesus a tough time, he about, about claiming to be the Son of God, he said, well, in your own Bible, it says, you are gods. So explain that. You know, he says the Word of God cannot be broken, and they couldn't answer him that question, and they left him alone. So he kept Psalm 82 in his back pocket as one of those tough passages. It's kind of like the time where they said, whose authority do you do this? And he said, well, tell me about John, by whose authority does John preach? And then they didn't want to answer him because they knew whatever answer they gave would be controversial. Well, the same thing with Psalm 82. There were a lot of discussions about Psalm 82, and uh, it was a controversial passage that Jesus knew 
and the others had, had problems with. That's what's going on in John 10. But let's look at it and realize that the word translated gods is Elohim with a plural verb, not with a singular verb as it is used when it's referring to God. God, now this is Elohim singular, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, Elohim with the plural, he holds judgment. Let's just read the whole thing. It's a short psalm. Verse 2. How long, and this is God speaking here, to the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, this is God still speaking, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. And then the psalmist ends saying, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. So the psalmist gives us a peek into heaven, and we overhear a conversation between God and Elohim. Who is he talking to? They're not all they're not righteous like he. They're, they're not good in every way. They're not infallible because they're doing some things wrong. If you go back, he's saying they're judging unjustly, verse 2. They're showing partiality to the wicked, whoever these Elohim are. Uh, no knowledge or understanding. They're walking about in darkness. And uh, he's threatening them with death, some kind of death. So who are these Elohim? It's not the true and living God. He is greater than they are. Could it be the angels? Well, I believe it is. And a more, an easier passage in Psalm 8 is one we always read in terms of angels. And it's another one quoted in Hebrews, uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6, and uh, translated angels there. And this is the ESV that translates the word Elohim as heavenly beings. Yet you, are made, you have made him, talking about humankind, human beings, you have made man a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Now, you've heard that before, right? That's a very well-known passage. And uh, you've always taken heavenly beings or angels as the angelic beings. You've never thought of it as gods. But that's the literal translation of that passage, Elohim. Just keep in mind, to the Hebrew mind, gods could mean the one God, they could refer to false gods. It could refer to heavenly beings. And uh, that will help you understand these difficult passages like Psalm 82. Okay, let's go back to, to Psalm 82 and get some of these terms. Now we're getting into a new cluster of passages here. We just looked at passages describing the nature of angels. We saw they're spiritual in nature. 
That means no physical body, but spiritual. They're heavenly. They could be described as stars, which might have something to do with their glory. Holy ones and divine beings are heavenly beings. Now we're going to get into a cluster of passages that have something to do with their status. And this gets into this divine counsel language. You see in a lot of the Psalms, and you see it in a few other passages. Uh, you see it in Job as well. And uh, Psalm 82 has a lot of that language. Now look at verse 1 again. God has taken his place in the divine counsel. What is that? The word counsel there is like the word assembly or congregation. In the midst of the gods, Elohim, not, he's, he's in the midst of them, so it's not a re reference to God himself, the one God. In the midst of the Elohim, the heavenly beings, he holds judgment. And then you have this verse 6. I said, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. It seems to be a reference to a council that aids somehow in the administration of justice. Because in Psalm 82, the Lord's saying, you're not getting the job done. You're showing partiality to the wicked. Now, it's not that God needs help in the administration of justice. God can do it himself, and we're not exactly sure why this council exists. Uh, some theories are that maybe it teaches his patience with mankind. Uh, Maybe it teaches his thoughtful deliberation. He doesn't just sweep us away in his wrath, but he discusses with the divine counsel his plans and his intentions. You see that kind of activity in Job. He's even discussing with Satan, his servant Job. And that seems to be a similar kind of hearing here in Psalm 82. Uh, it, has, it has to mean something like that. Let's see... What else we got? Look, look at Psalm 89. We read this a moment ago. Look at it now, looking for this divine counsel, this assembly. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings, term for angels, is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him. Now, it's not saying these are equal to him in any way. They're below him, submissive to him, but they seem to have a special status. Jason, do you have... Are you just... Got, you're just propping your arm up. Okay. <laughs> I didn't want to miss a question or anything. Okay, let's look at another passage. This is Jeremiah 23, and I've got verses 18 and 22 up there. Who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? And then Jeremiah says again in verse 22, But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. So it seems this council has some kind of a special, special um, place near God where they can hear his words 
directly. Here's Daniel 7, 9 and 10. Very important prophecy here where we get the term ancient of days from. I couldn't get the whole thing on there, so I'm going to read it from my Bible and not off the screen there. Daniel 7, 9 and 10. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. We've talked about that in terms of how many angels are there. And this is quoted in Revelation 5.11, where it's translated myriad, a a myriad, or ten thousand times ten thousand. This comes from Daniel chapter 7. But look at the end of verse 10. They stood before him, the court sat in judgment, and the books were open. Now what is that? The court. Seems here again we have this divine council. Uh, I don't, I'm not making any promises, but we may do a whole class on this um, if I feel brave enough to get into it. But I, I'm very careful here with the angels. Paul warned Timothy about getting into myths and genealogies and things that we don't have the answers to. And as a gospel preacher, I, I want to stop short of speculation and not get into fan, fantasies and all this. If the Bible's telling us something, I want to know what it is. But I don't want to start just getting into speculative theories about angels. So if I feel like there's a lesson to be found on the divine council beyond just noting its existence, we'll get into it. But I'm not there yet, so we're just mentioning it. I'm putting it there in front of you so you can think about it. But Daniel mentions it here in Daniel 7. Now, here's another term. And these are, remember, terms having to do with special status among angels. You have your ordinary angels, and then you have your divine counsel. Now let's look at this term, prince. You've uh, seen in the New Testament, even though there's only a couple of references, the archangel, right? Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, um, the book of Jude mentions Michael the archangel. Uh, Revelation 12, well, in the Old Testament, the term is prince or chief prince. Look at this, Daniel 10, 13. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. Again, there seems to be some geographical authority to these princes. I don't understand how that works, but it's there. Here's the end of Daniel 10. Then he said, do you know I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael your prince. So prince is another term indicating a higher status, and uh, it's found in a few other interesting places. For example, uh, Daniel 12.1, at that time shall arise Michael the great prince. And then we have Psalm 82 again. I said, you are God, sons of the most high, all of you nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. 
You're, so prince could be used there with reference to angels. You're not, I'm not going to make an exception out of you. You can fall just like other chief angels have fallen. It could be a reference to earthly princes. It's very vague there. Uh, I found it interesting that the angel you see in Joshua chapter 5 is referred to by this, this word prince, but it's translated commander in uh, Joshua chapter 5. So Joshua sees this angel before they attack Jericho, right? And he falls down in front of him. And uh, the angel says, no, I am the commander or prince of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Okay. Now here is... Yeah, go ahead. Of course. A lot of the passages you're referencing are Psalms or which is very poetic or Daniel, which is visions and prophecies. So how do you distinguish between describing something that literally exists versus something that's more metaphorical or poetic in the language? Well, I'll start with this. I give things a literal interpretation unless they cannot be understood any other way than interpreting them figuratively. And also you do need to look at what kind of literature you're looking at. And like you said, Job, Psalms, um, um, Daniel, these are are apocalyptic and poetic books. Joshua is not. Deuteronomy is not. Um, I haven't put a lot of Deuteronomy up there, but there was a little Deuteronomy in there. This language is used in those books as well. And um, we, we started out in Kings, and um, we looked at Samuel. So I've seen a lot of consistency in these terms throughout the Old Testament, although there seemed to be a lot more detail in Daniel and Psalms. The only other thing I can say about that, Will, is that if they don't mean angels, they got to mean something. So if um, we're interpreting them too literally, we have to step back and ask, what did God mean in Psalm 82 when he said, you are gods? You know, what did he mean when he said, you are gods and you can fall just like any prince? Who, it's still, even if it's poetry, it's still acceptable to ask, Who is God speaking to? Who is speaking? We know it's God. Who is he talking to? Um, With regard to the divine council held in heaven, okay, if it's figurative, then what does it figure? What does it symbolize? And, you know, as I puzzle over that, I can't come up with anything other than what we're already saying. So I'm not saying I totally understand all the odds and ends of it, but it appears to show a council with some higher rank than your average angelic being. And uh, we see this here, you know, in Job, which is a book of poetry, but the first two chapters of Job are, I think we'd all agree, pretty literal, kind of historical. Even in its presentation on the page, it's prose, it's not set off in lines. You don't get that till Job chapter 3. And uh, what do you have here? You have another term for angels. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Now, we've all, 
always understood this to be the angels, right? Uh, you learned that in Bible class when you were a kid. And uh, this has lent some credence to the idea that Satan started out as an angel and he fell from heaven. And we'll have a whole class on, on Satan and his origins at some point in the quarter. But look at how this dovetails with Psalm 82, Psalm 89, uh, these passages that talk about this counsel in heaven. It seems that these sons of God are the divine counsel. Chapter 2, verse 1. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. What are they doing? And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And God is having a conversation with Satan. He's clearly above and in control the whole time because Satan's asking permission for this or that. But he seems to be showing his, um, his patience with the angels and with mankind and, and his trust in Job and showing that human beings will follow God even just, just for the sake of love and not for anything else. Because you remember, the devil's challenge was, you know, you take everything away from him and he'll curse you. Here's uh, Job 38, and we've read this before when we were talking about the stars. Uh, this is the only other reference. There's only six references to the sons of God. And uh, these three in Job are the clearest examples of angels. When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. This was at the time of creation, and we looked at this last week to talk about how they were created, but they were created before we were created, before the world was created. Okay, and then of course, the word angel is throughout the Old Testament, and I just threw a random reference up from Exodus 23 because there are so many. This word angel has to do with function. So this gets us, we're going to run out of time before we get to the end of this list, but this gets us into another cluster of terms that have to do with function. So we've looked at some terms that have to do with nature. We looked at some terms that have to do with special status. Uh, and now we're into a section of terms in the Old Testament still that have to do with function. And what does the word angel, this, this goes for the Hebrew word or the New Testament word in the Greek. What does the word angel mean? Messenger, right. And so many times it's referring to human messengers. But when it refers to a heavenly being, the Bible uses the English word angel, which is formed from the Greek word angelos, which, which is the word for messenger or angel. So that's the most common term that you find in the Bible. Here's another one, ministers. This has to do with function. What is the function of a minister? What's a synonym for minister? Servant. Servant. Servant, I heard somebody say. So a messenger is a servant, and their function is to serve. So that's what Psalm 103, 20, 21 is about. Bless the Lord, O you, his angels, you mighty ones, who do his word, obeying the voice of the word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers, who do his will. Who could deny that the ministers there are angels? The only other place where angels are called ministers in the Old Testament, Psalm 104, verse 4, he makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. We've talked about that several times. And then I like this one. It's only found in three places. It's an Aramaic word. This part of Daniel is written in Aramaic. Daniel 4, 13, 17, 23. The word watcher, 
this is in that strange dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in which he turned into an animal and the dream came true because of his pride. So it's a very strange chapter in the Bible, but I, I love this chapter. Um, and angels are referred to as watchers here. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. And later on in the dream, the sentence is, by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will, and sits over at the lowliest of men. It might be derived from a term meaning protect, and the idea behind watcher, linguistically anyway, is, for, uh, is the idea of a wakeful guardian, someone who is always alert, standing guard, protecting, and ensuring safety. So we'll stop right there. That's about halfway through my list. We'll finish up the Old Testament words next week. We'll get into the New Testament words, and uh, that'll give us a good base, I think, to, to put the rest of the lessons on top of. Appreciate it.